Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 206, recorded on September 12th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes, from Northern California. Let's do the news. This week, kernel developers have been hard at work on the Linux 5.15 merge window, which closes today. Now, 3,440 patches may seem like a slow start to some, but those patches are packed with significant new features. Actually, those numbers still continue to impress me. Uh, but a feature looking through all of them that really caught our attention, well, was one that was 17 years in the making. The real-time preemption locking code has been merged. That work began back in 2004, and it's ended up touching so many different parts of the kernel. So we will have more on preemption locking in the future. But for today, another fascinating feature in 5.15 is the idle scheduling class control group. This new group will only run when there's nothing else for the CPU to do, but using the control group architecture means you can control the relative allocation of those idle resources within the group. It's really a nice use of a collection of existing kernel technologies. We're also seeing improvements to some of our favorite file systems, the block I.O. subsystem, and, of course, improved hardware support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been reviewing some of the development chatter, and it seems like there's a lot going on with this development cycle. And it hasn't all necessarily been good news, actually. But at least in this case, the robots have our back. Intel's kernel testbot found a noticeable performance regression that made it into Linux 5.15. The performance regression came from the new MemCG accounting support that was merged just last week. It turned out to have a lot more overhead than anyone expected, about a 33% performance impact, at least according to Intel's tests. And, well, when Linus saw that, he quickly reverted the patch and he noted, quote, it was completely broken and I should have caught onto it earlier, end quote. <laughs> and while we're speaking of errors in the kernel, there's another kernel-related story we wanted to fill you in on. Landing this past weekend was the surprising move by Linus to enable the w-error compiler flag by default for all kernel builds. That flag makes all warnings be treated as errors, which in turn stops the kernel build if it runs into those new errors. And unfortunately, it turns out there are a few more warnings than one might have thought. This change has led to quite a mess. Oh, man, in particular, like test farms, like the Intel bot we were just talking about, you know, they're set up sometimes to validate just recent or specific changes in the kernel that they're interested in. Well, a lot of these farms were just stopped cold due to warnings in the code base that aren't even related to what they're working on, sort of rendering the farm semi-useless. And a Googler who has been involved with the LLVM Clang building of the Linux kernel ended up submitting a patch that reverted the change by Linus, and he noted that Quote, while I can appreciate the intent of enabling WR, I don't think it's the right tool to address the root cause of developers not testing certain tool chains or configurations or taking existing reports seriously enough. No one wants to see their CI system turn red. He went on to say that the WR flag might be useful to prevent new warnings from creeping in, but doesn't seem like a good fit for the current state of the kernel, unfortunately. Linus being Linus responded and basically rejected the notion of disabling it by default outright, saying, no, it was merged in response to years of pain. I'm not going to revert that change. Now, I will probably have to limit it, 
but basically any maintainer who has code that causes warnings should expect that they will have to fix those warnings. You could tell the tensions were getting high, and Linus went on to say that he spent hours recently getting rid of warnings, and he really shouldn't be the one fixing other people's code. He also noted that they shouldn't really be shocked when he tells them it's time to clean their own house. Marco Elver chimed in shortly after with the idea of maybe just enabling WAIR when doing a compile test kernel build. That's really the type of build that makes sure the kernel and all of its drivers can successfully compile. And that idea seems to have taken hold with Linus calling it a reasonable change and merging the patch that demotes it to compile test only by default. Really, it seems Linus just wants developers to start dealing with their compiler warnings. And while we're speaking of things Linus is trying to correct, you might have heard about the merge of the new Paragon NTFS driver we've been telling you about, and Linus's subsequent complaints regarding GitHub merges. Here's what he said. That's another one of those things that I really don't want to see. GitHub creates absolutely useless garbage merges, and you should never, ever use the GitHub interface to merge anything. Linus goes on to note that, to him, GitHub creates totally worthless commit messages as well, adding, GitHub is a perfectly fine hosting site, and it does a number of other things well, too, but merges is not one of those things. For a little context around that complaint, You've got to remember that the kernel is a pre-GitHub and even a pre-Git project. Modern, what you might call GitHub-native projects, tend to outsource some of this bookkeeping to the pull request process. And that kind of workflow was never adopted by the kernel team. Yeah, and after all, Linus created Git, so this is not a complaint about Git, but really how GitHub creates merge commits. He kind of hits the nail on the head with this point when he says, quote, the Linux kernel merges need to be done properly. That means proper commit messages with information about what is being merged and why you are merging something. But it also means proper authorship and committer information, etc. All of which GitHub entirely screws up. And then Linus goes on to mention that they had this same issue with the uh, KSMB server request. Um, which reminded me that we're putting a Samba server in the kernel. And, uh, <laughs> But file servers built into the kernel aside, if you're an AMD user, check the show notes. There's some nice-to-haves landing in 5.15 just for you. One of the lesser-known realities of large companies running enterprise Linux distributions in production is the need for newer software mixed in with that tried-and-tested stable base. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how much of a little-known reality this is, because we have heard tales from Amazon employees who ripped out the TCP IP stack and wrote their own on Linux. We have heard tales from Facebook developers rolling their own CentOS kernels and repositories replacing entire large chunks of the traditional CentOS release. Um, and just as an aside, uh, this is one of the reasons the Facebook server team is really super excited about CentOS Stream, is they can now participate directly in the future development of the platform. That's going to be something of a game changer, I expect. But back to this poorly kept industry secret, something needed to be done to address the needs of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and CentOS users who might not have the resources of Facebook or Amazon and are just kind of stuck in the position of needing newer components for their chosen operating system. Yep, and long story short, Fedora team members realized, well, they had mostly what they needed to solve the problem right there in front of them for their enterprise cousins. And that's how the Apple project was born. It stands for Extra Packages for Enterprise Linux. 
Apple packages are typically based on their Fedora counterparts, and Apple uses a large part of the same infrastructure as Fedora, including the build system, the Bugzilla instance, the update manager, the mirror manager, and, well, now the group has recently begun building packages against CentOS Stream as RHEL, calling it Apple Next. The initiative has gone through various transformations over the years, from a test project to now a full special interest group responsible for over 3,000 additional packages not included in RHEL. And this week, Red Hat announced they will officially support the community-based special interest group. A new team is being formed and expected to start work sometime in October. It's a part of the Community Platform Engineering Group, or CPR for short, That's the Red Hat team that unites IT and release engineering from both Fedora and CentOS. This is nice from the standpoint of seeing Red Hat acknowledge that this is a workflow that their customers are dependent on. And I would expect that probably gives some peace of mind to users who are taking advantage of Apple. But overall, there's still major parts of the CentOS story that are still coming together. We do not yet have a complete picture. I mean, we still have the transition to stream. There are new rebuilds yet to be announced. And there are large, well-resourced companies that are just getting started working upstream with stream. And now you have this official Red Hat backing of Apple. Well, all of this suggests to me that we could be about to witness some kind of CentOS revolution. Good news, everyone. Microsoft's first full Linux distribution has an update that might just pique your interest. As you probably recall, CBL Mariner is a Linux distribution maintained by Microsoft for their own internal usage, but it's publicly available for anyone interested. CBL Mariner is used as part of WSL. It packs Azure Sphere OS, Sonic, and a whole bunch of other Linux-based efforts within Microsoft. And now that we are in September, Microsoft has just published their August 2021 update. CBL Mariner continues using the Linux 5.10 kernel, which makes sense given it's a long-term support release. And they've added many new packages this time around, including Cockpit. But the biggest feature, as far as we're concerned, is that they're now shipping a public ISO image ready to download. So, of course, I had to give it a go. I mean, is Microsoft, they've released a Linux distribution and it's now available as an ISO. Yeah, yeah, that's going to get a download. And um, it's quaint. And not in like a bad way. It's clearly a lean, mean working machine. It has a similar approach to other tiny distros like Alpine and Container Linux came to mind. Uh, But CBL Mariner only has just like basic packages needed to basically run containers. (laughs) I mean, it's very minimum. You know, you have some common Linux tools in there, of course, like PS and LS, and it's got Bash and all of that. And it uses RPM for packages, so you can install packages that way. It's about a 700 megabyte ISO image. um, And when you boot it up, (laughs) it starts with a text-to-speech at the boot menu. It's not like Grub either, Wes. It's like their own boot menu, I think. Uh, and it starts talking to you immediately. <laughs> I had other audio playing. It was very disorienting. Clearly, that's a weird lesson they've learned from the Windows side. I mean, I guess it's friendly. Yeah, yeah, and I could kind of see it being useful, obviously, for visually impaired folks, but maybe for those that are installing it on a headless system as, as well. Uh, it has three options. It has text installer with speech, the text installer, and then the graphical installer. And so, of course, I was like, well, let's see what Microsoft's 
graphical Linux installer is like. So I chose that and then it immediately and hilariously crashed. And then the screen reader ridiculously read the error message to me, but I didn't expect much with that. So I rebooted and I did the CLI install and it's a bare minimum installer. I mean, very, very bare, but it gets the job done. It's kind of exactly what you'd want and expect from something like CBL. And it installs quick, like quicker than I even expected. I want to say maybe within two minutes, the entire distro was installed. It was about two gigabytes on disk once everything was all said and done. You reboot. You got a real minimal install. I mean, your your basic tools are there. You're going to have bash when you log in at the shell. And you got systemd, so you're pretty much good to go. And you could start running containers. I mean, all in all... I can see they clearly have built something for their particular use case, and it is designed to a T for that. Microsoft, for their part, has stated that they're committed to keeping CBL Mariner up to date, noting that it actually enhances Microsoft's ability overall to stay current on Linux updates. They also note that the stripped-back nature of the OS makes for better security, saying, quote, by focusing the features in the core image to just what is needed for our internal cloud customers, There are just fewer services to load and fewer attack vectors. Now, it still strikes us as a little bit strange to watch Microsoft build and maintain their own Linux distribution, which is now even available as an ISO. But they seem to have a clear vision for CBL Mariner, crafting it for their own specific needs. And it's going to be fascinating to watch if anyone else chooses to adopt it. For my part, though, I'm just hoping they ship a version with Plasma baked in sometime soon. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show as well. They're our cloud provider. We host everything on Linode now, and they started 18 years ago. Now they are the largest independent open cloud provider in the world, with 11 global data centers serving nearly a million customers. And, you know, I've talked to you guys about Linode and how we use it quite a bit. But I'd like to suggest to you that Linode could be part of a multi-cloud strategy that could be critical for your business. You know, the big, large, hyperscaler cloud vendors, they're going to present themselves as a one-stop shop. They're going to invite you to just come on in, become wholly dependent on them as a single source for everything you might ever need. But you know that's that's not a good thing. The problem with relying on a single-source cloud provider is vendor lock-in. You get so deeply intertwined into the vendor's ecosystem that it becomes impossible or at least cost prohibitive, if nothing else, to break away. And then if your business needs to change, you're stuck. And beyond being stuck and trapped, it's a single source architecture that, well, makes your business less adaptable and less resilient. So Linode really can be part of your multi-cloud strategy. And, you know, there is a significant shift happening in the industry right now. Gardner recently estimated that two-thirds of all cloud industry customers are going to adopt a multi-cloud strategy as a means for specifically avoiding vendor lock-in by the end of 2024. So it's something we all really should be thinking about. And if you ever run into any trouble with Linode, they have the best customer support. I mean, it's truly amazing. 24-7 customer support by phone, ticket, or social. They're going to help you, along with hundreds of guides and tutorials. And they're always reaching out to content creators to help create an ecosystem of content that makes it easier to use Linode. They also recently invested in our Colony Reunion Road Trip to make it possible for our community to connect because they understand it's important to invest in those areas of the Linux community as well. And not a lot of companies get that. There's a lot of ways to host something, but Linode is one of the companies that truly gets it. They're dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. 
So go see what you can build. Go see what you can learn. Sign up today at linode.com slash land. Get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account, and you support the show. linode.com slash land. linux.ting.com. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, go see how much you could save and then take 25 bucks off that at linux.ting.com. This episode of Linux Action News is also made possible by our friends at Ting, and there's something special over there. They're making the big networks that you hear about all the time, the coast-to-coast networks, they're making them available to everybody. Ting is a mobile virtual network operator. That means Ting customers get access to the big carrier networks, but with way better customer service and at a lot lower cost. So it's just a win-win. I've been a Ting customer since 2003, and they've stayed flexible with me. They've worked with me over the years, and they're great for those of you who are traveling as well. And their plans are simple and straightforward. They have ones that are really easy to understand. They have ones that are flexible for families. It's great. And Ting is also doing a bit of a giveaway right now. If you go over to their Twitter page, you'll see more about it. They're at TingFTW on Twitter. They're doing a Yeti prize pack giveaway. You can get a Yeti cooler, a Rambler, a Tumblr, a backpack, and more. So they'll have information on their Twitter feed, and you can sign up. They have like, I think it's like seven different ways you could sign up to win. So you might as well get in on that. And then check out their plans, too. You know, a good plan is hard to find, and they're flexible. And if you can be clever on how you use your technology, like download your podcast and sync a little bit of music before you hit the road, you could be shocked at how much you could save. And the great thing about Ting is there's no contracts ever. And it's super simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone's going to work because they support the major networks. So you get started by going to linux.ting.com. You check your current phone, get all the information. They have a really easy, smooth process to do all of that. And you get set within minutes. They'll send you a SIM card. You pop that in. You go back to their website once you got it. Another couple of minutes, you're activated. You're good to go. They have a great dashboard to manage all of it. If you do need to talk to a human, you're going to be set. But if you don't, you're going to love the website. But the key is to support the show and get 25 bucks off by visiting linux.ting.com. It's never been a better time to be a Ting customer. Their plans are more competitive than ever, and they're needed in the industry more than ever. So go sign up and save 25 bucks at linux.ting.com. We don't spend a lot of time going meta on this show, by which I mean talking about the show in the show. But with the summer coming to a close, we wanted to touch base on an editorial choice that we made during the summer lull of development and general free software news. Really, we thought you should know that more than a dozen additional stories were considered and rejected for this episode. Not because they were bad stories, but because we know you're busy. We're trying to focus on the news that matters this week. That's the Linux Action News promise. And it often means we're going to pass on more stories than we can include each week. Not as a judgment call on those stories, but out of respect for your time. We know you're busy, and the value of this show is getting concise, accurate information to help you do your job and stay informed. As a concrete example, we didn't cover the latest point release of the OpenShot project. Not because we don't think it's a valuable project, or a worthwhile release, or even something we personally are excited about. But because, unless you're an OpenShot user, this release hasn't really changed the value proposition of the project. And that means it doesn't really fit in Linux Action News. And that's true for a lot of stories, 
some of which might just be a better fit for some of our other shows, like Linux Unplugged. And I think we also realize you can read headlines in a million different places in a million different ways if you want. So we have a job to do, and our job is to provide value and context and some selection where it's helpful. And more often than not, it will mean the episodes are short and concise. And it doesn't mean that we're not digging into every story and seeking comment and evaluating all of the news in a broader context. In fact, uh, ironically, a shorter show often takes more work. As backwards as that might seem on the surface, it takes more work to make a show shorter because it's a process of working through each story, um, identifying the ones that have a larger impact, and taking those lists of stories and whittling it down into something more refined. It means after we've concluded our research, messaging our contacts and sleuthing around the mailing list and reading through our RSS feeds, what makes it into the show is the stuff that we think you should really know about. Um, and I should probably add, it does sometimes mean occasionally longer episodes too. Usually not in the summer, but if that's what the content calls for, well, we'll hope you stick around for the longer episodes when it's a big show week as well. And really, that's the kind of flexibility that we think new media productions, like this podcast, should lean into, not getting trapped in the formats of the past that follow the clock. Making Linux industry news more accessible to busy professionals is something we take seriously. Because in a very real way, this is the new show I would want to listen to if I wasn't already making it. Now, with all of this said, we are always interested in your thoughts. Our inbox is open to you. LinuxActionNews.com slash contact. Indeed. We always like to hear your ideas or uh, story suggestions or leads or announcements. You can send those there as well. You know, Linux Action News, if you haven't been around for a while, you might not know this, but it started life off as just a news segment in the Linux Action show. And in that context, the news could be five minutes long or it could be the entire episode. It was just the news segment and it was what it needed to be. And that general idea echoes today in Linux Action News. In a way, I guess we are, we're asking the audience to trust us and disconnect episode length from quality of episode. In our view, our value to you, our listener, is in creating a high-quality episode that provides you the information you need in the most concise and accurate delivery possible. And we're going to keep trying to do that every single week. So make sure you get every episode by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And of course, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week. We'll be right back.